Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you so much for your word that we could uh, we could read it and we could pray it, we could sing it. Lord, now that we could come and hear your word preached to us. God, you know that we could be tempted just to, to hear these things and even to say, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I've heard that. But Lord, we, we need you to speak to us in such a way, God, that really cuts us to the quick. And we really pray that your spirit would work through your word to even reveal the very motives of our hearts. But God, we need to be led all the way. And I, I pray that you would so work in us to not only know these things and to acknowledge them, but Lord, to repent of any sin that you might reveal to us and to walk in obedience. And Lord, having hearts of thanksgiving and praise for all that you have done for us. We just thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So, have you ever had a conversation with someone where they ask you a question or they make a comment about your life that makes you feel uncomfortable? You know, because maybe they hit just a little bit too close to home. Now, you know, I think it's interesting. The Bible just lays out us as people just as we are. You know, shows us all the warts and shows humanity for what it is. And I just think of the example as I think about this question about Jesus when he confronted the Samaritan woman about the five husbands that she had. And, she, and he goes, you know, and even the, the man that you currently live with or the man that you have is really a living boyfriend, if you want to put it in today's terms, I guess. And, you know, what did she do when Jesus brought that up? Well, she quickly changed the subject, which is probably what we oftentimes do when people ask us questions that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And so then she begins to ask Jesus about denominational differences between Jews and Samaritans, you know, and, uh, you know, help me to, to understand this. Well, all, that's what we oftentimes do when we are confronted with something unpleasant. You know, we, we change the subject. And that's sort of what happens here in the book of James. You know, when he confronts his congregation that he loves so much with their sin of showing favoritism. And, and so what do they do? They seek to do, sort of divert the attention from themselves uh, to uh, their pastor and, and really try to sort of justify their actions. You know, we sort of see that implied here in James. And it's as if they said, now, now just a moment, James. You know, we, we were loving our neighbor, just as Moses told us to do in Leviticus 19.18. You know, Moses said, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what we were attempting to do. When these rich people came into church and, you know, and we were telling them to here, take this nice seat here, sit up front, you know, where you can see, that's really all we were doing. We were just loving our neighbors. We were just trying to, to make these people feel welcome and, and, and help them to see that we acknowledge what we are. But, you know, James, even if what you're saying is true, that what we did was wrong, really, is it that big of a deal? I mean, you know, so, so you give one person preference over another preference? Is that really something that's such a big deal? And James has already laid out a very comprehensive argument in verses 1 through 7 showing why favoritism is wrong. 
You know, James argues that favoritism is incompatible with the character of God. You know, we saw the Christ of glory we talked about last week and how favoritism is, is contrary to that. But also, favoritism is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the salvation that we receive. God didn't come to, you know, have preference with the rich people. Actually, God came to, to bring the gospel to those that are poor, those that are sort of outcasts, you know, those that the world wants to sort of throw off to the side. And so when we show preference to those that are rich and those that are powerful and, and we put our trust in maybe that maybe they'll do something beneficial for us, but it's really contrary to the gospel. But also it doesn't make sense to show favoritism to those that are abusing you, those that are taking you to court and those that are treating you poorly. And then you turn around and you sort of kiss up to them. You know, that just doesn't make sense. But now James uh, addresses the idea of favoritism and, and really this idea of, is this really such a big deal? Is it really that, that big of a deal? I mean, it's not like you're out there killing people. It's not like you're, you know, committing adultery or, or doing something like that. I mean, it's just, it's a, just a little thing. And I, and I think it's interesting as you think about that, you know, when it sounds like, those that he's talking to are a little bit like when we go out and we share the gospel. Have you ever done this? You go out and you tell someone about Christ and you talk about how they're a sinner in need of grace. And have you ever had anybody reply to you this way? Well, I'm not that bad. You know, I mean, I've not really killed anybody. Okay, so maybe I tell a few white lies or, you know, maybe I'm not completely honest on my taxes or whatever, but I'm really not that bad because I really haven't committed, you know, like the top 10, you know, sins, although they, they don't understand that they really have. But anyway, but, you know, they sort of talk like that. And that's sort of what uh, James' congregation is like. They're sort of making that same argument that it's not that bad. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that we can fall into that trap as well. That sometimes we can look at the sins in our own lives and we think, well, I don't do this and this and this and this. But then maybe we have other sins that we sort of just keep as our pet sins that we sort of justify. And it may be the lust of the heart. You know, it may be that we have a tongue that's really loose and we gossip about other people. and We slander them behind their backs. You know, it, it could be that, you know, we give ourselves to, you know, materialism and comfort as opposed to obedience to Christ. You know, whatever the sin may be, it's very easy for us to, to fall in to those things and say, you know, what is the big deal? But James goes on to show that so, showing favoritism is also certainly incompatible with God's law and that it is sin and therefore it is a big deal. And that any of the sins that we might seek to justify are also a big deal as well. Because what James talks to us about is, is not really only the idea of favoritism, but he also shows us something of the character of the law of God, of the word of God, in the life of believers, and what obedient faith looks like. So I want you to look with that with me this morning, if you would, as we look at verses 8 to, through 13, and, and try to continue on looking at this idea of uh, favoritism in the life of believer. And now, before we, we do this, I mean, he talks about in verse 8 that we are to keep the royal law. Now, you may say, now, wait a minute. I thought that law and gospel were contrary to each other, right? I mean, you know, Romans 6.14 says, For sin will have, dominion, have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace, right? 
It has to do with law and gospel, law and grace. And, and those things are contrary to one another, right? And, and many churches actually preach that. But, but if we look at the scriptures more carefully, we see that that's not the case. But once the law shows us that we cannot live up to God's perfect standard, and we therefore see our need of the gospel of grace, and we turn to Christ, then what does God do? Well, then God writes his law upon our hearts as the pattern of the new life that we receive in Jesus Christ, as a pattern of life and daily living as disciples of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about what, what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. You know, he, he says that the Father delivered us from the domain of darkness, you know, under the law, under the rule of Satan, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Okay, so now, as new creatures in Christ, we have a new king. You know, we're under new management. We've been given a new life in Christ, and we've been given these laws. And as citizens, or as he says in verse 5 here in chapter 2, as heirs of, of Jesus' kingdom, we're delivered from the standards of the laws of, of Satan's dominion, and we're given that new king, and he's a very benevolent king with laws that guide us to live as Adam and Eve were supposed to live in the Garden of Eden. And, and James describes this royal law in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 25, and then in verse 12 of chapter 2 as a law of liberty. It's a law that gives freedom. It's not a law that gives bondage. Now, the law of God is, is not a new bondage. But it is given to mark the end of the old bondage and the beginning of true freedom. It's not like God said, I've saved you by grace, now therefore you need to keep my law. You need to do what I say, and if you don't do that, you're not going to make your way to heaven. You know, it's not like he's putting this extra burden on us. Instead, it's like he says, look, I have set you free in my son. You no longer have to, to give yourself over to the bondage that it is to live under Satan. Because you know what Satan says is what? You know, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, right? Do whatever you want. Say whatever you want. Act however you want. You know, you can, uh, you can get married. You can get divorced. You can lie. You, you can be on Facebook, you know, when you're supposed to be working. It's okay. Do whatever you want. You know, and that's what Satan said to, to Eve in the garden. You know, he, he talked, he came to Eve and he said, so what did God say? Did God really say this? And then he just basically challenged her, but you know what? You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. You, you know, you can be like God. Wouldn't that be great? But what he didn't explain is that there's great bondage in that quote-unquote freedom of living according to the flesh. And what God wants us to see is that he has set us free in Christ to live as we were created to live in the image of God. You know, if you think about Adam and Eve, uh, before Satan came, before sin entered the world, what was their life like? It was great. There was no husband-wife tension, no, no marital discord. There was no weeds in the garden. The work was, was pleasant and good. The relationship with God was awesome as, they, as God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It was wonderful. And then Satan comes and says, 
You want to be free? Do whatever you want. And then what came as a result of that? Marital conflict and tension. The husband who's supposed to care for his wife is now accusing her as being the one that causes his difficulty. Then he turns to God and says, You know, God, actually this is your fault because you're the one that gave her to me. And then the work became laborious and then Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And so the law that, that God has given to us as Christians to follow is not a new bondage. It is actually more like guardrails on the highway. You know, as we're driving down the highway, you know, we might have a tendency to drift to the left or to the right. And if you're in the mountains, that can be a very dangerous thing. And so God puts up those guardrails, the law to help guide us and direct us to keep us in that path of freedom. So we don't just follow our own desires or we don't just follow the ways of the world or we don't listen to Satan as he comes and he seeks to cause us to follow him. So the principle on which James now rests his teaching is, is that we have a law to obey. And it is a very special law. It's actually called the royal law. And it's also according to the scriptures, as he says in verse 8, which it means it carries that scriptural authority in our, our lives. Now, lest you think I'm just making all this up with this freedom and the law and the relationship with the believer and stuff, actually God's given us a very good example of this. If you think back to the Israelites when they were in Egypt, what does it say in Exodus 6? Exodus 6 says that God set them free. He redeemed them. And then what did God do once he took the Israelites out of Egypt? He took them to Sinai, right? And what did he do? He gave them the law. And he, and he says in Exodus, Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, you know, as the Lord is getting ready to, to present this law to his people, he says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then he says, You shall have no other gods before me. So he basically says, You know, because I have set you free, because you have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Do you remember? Before they left Egypt, what happened? They took the Passover, right? And they put the blood on the doorposts. And death passed over them. And, and they left. They had been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And he says, because you've been washed, then now you come and now you're at a place where you can follow the law of God and you can walk in that freedom. You see, our God is both the, our Redeemer and He is the lawgiver because He loves us so much. And so he talks about the royal law in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures. Now, what does he mean? Well, there are several ways that this can be interpreted, but it seems that James is referring to a law which comes to us not only with the weight of scriptural authority, but which in particular is marked out as being a special concern of our king, of King Jesus. It has a special place in the heart of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Now, you probably recognize this. You know, Jesus quotes this in Matthew and in Mark as a summary of the second table of the law. You know, that those ten commandments, the moral law that has to do with our relationship with each other. Jesus also defined who our neighbor was in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? You know, the Jews thought that their neighbor was who? Jews. You know, definitely not Gentiles. And so it's sort of like, you're like me, you're my neighbor type thing. But Jesus says, no, no. He said, actually, your neighbor is anyone who is in need. 
And he, and he redefines that for them to, to help them to see who their neighbor is. And he says, if, if, you, if we want to know how we are to love our neighbors, then we need to, to look at what uh, James says here. You shall love your neighbor, how? As yourself. Now, how do we love ourselves? Well, you know, we get up in the morning and we go to the mirror and some of us might go, ugh, you know. But anyway, we, we look in the mirror and we, we see what condition we're in and we do whatever we can to try to remedy that situation and make us look as good as we can, at least as naturally as possible. And then we go throughout our day. And as we are going throughout our day, we love ourselves by providing loving care and attention to anything we need, right? And that's the kind of love that, that God calls us to do. That we love others in that same way. You know, we might look at other people and go, ugh! You know, as we see who, who they really are, as we see them in their sins, but we're not called to just react to that. We are called to lovingly provide care and attention for them according to what God's Word says. And, and show them that kind of love. Well, the opposite of this royal law is partiality or favoritism. And, it's, and, and you see here, James is sort of contrasting the royal law, which he said is doing well. If we do keep this law, we are doing well. But if we're not, then we have committed sin. Now, that, that term committed sin there, in some translations says that you are a transgressor. Okay, you are a transgressor. Of, of the law of God. Um, you are convicted by the law as transgressors, which means one who steps over the line in rebellion. So these things, these sins that we do, aren't just tiny little sins. It actually puts us in a place of rebellion against our God uh, to, to turn against Him. So the essence of the royal law is that wherever there's a need, there's an obligation to extend the sort of love that we lavish upon ourselves but the essence of partiality or favoritism is to select the recipients that we pour out that love on based on certain grounds. And, and the royal law involves bringing the same love that we show to ourselves into every interaction that we have with people. You know, so we are to love others in the same way that we do love ourselves and as much as we love ourselves. And for some of us, that's quite a bit, isn't it? You know, that we love ourselves. And we can never say that we have loved others too much. Actually, the love of Christ is an abiding love, is it not? It's a love that continues to show itself. And our love for others is not to exceed, be exceeded by our love for ourselves. We are called to love others as much, if not more, than we love ourselves. But James doesn't stop there. He goes on in verses 10 and 11. And, and he goes on to say, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You know, James insists that the law is one indivisible whole. You know, that there's no way in which we can pick and choose between the commandments that we want to obey and the commandments that we choose to disobey or to break. And one, one commentator illustrated it this way. They said, if you take a brick... And let's say you take a brick and you throw it at this window. That brick is going to hit at just one point. So there's only one point that, that's broken, right? But what's going to happen to that window? It's going to shatter. It's going to completely go apart. Or, or another maybe way of thinking about this is, let's say you take a, a chain 
and you decide to take out this link and you take out that link. Now, you've only broken this link and you've only broken that link, right? But the reality is you've broken the whole chain. It's no longer useful for what you could use it for. And it's the same way with the law of God, that it is one divisible whole. And so that when we break it, we break all of it. So the point that James is making is, is that partial obedience is actually disobedience to the law of God. Now, why does he say that? Well, he goes on in verse 11 and he says, For he who said... And, and, and what James is really doing is switching from speaking to the law and, and helping us to understand it's not just a bunch of individual regulations, but, but really it highlights the lawgiver. It really reflects the character of who God is. So the law was given to us not as a set of rules that we could break some and not break others, but it was really rules or laws that were given to us that reflects the character of our God. And, and so the thing which gives the law its indivisible nature is the character of God who spoke it. So this means that there's nothing arbitrary about the commands of the law. Each one reflects some facet of God's divine character. Neither is there anything in the law that's unnecessary or something that we can say, oh, yeah, well, you know, that doesn't really apply to us today, at least in terms of the moral law. And if the law is to be expressed the whole nature of the lawgiver, then each single precept has its place. Every law has its place. And to take away a precept from the law is to damage the revelation of God which he has given us in his law. So to say that one of the commands doesn't apply to me is to say that there is some aspect of the nature of God which doesn't matter as far as I'm concerned. And that's not true, brothers and sisters. And so that's why... Uh, James says, you know, you may think that to break just a little bit of the law isn't that big a deal, but it's really an affront upon the character of our God. But then he goes on and he talks about in verses 12 and 13 the mercy and judgment as well. He says in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, James here again, like I said, is using this term law of liberty or law of freedom uh, in different passages, in chapter 1, verse 25, and here as well. And, and he says that, um, that we are to act as those who will be judged. Now, that's a reminder of the certainty of the judgment seat of Christ that's coming in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And, and it calls us to be careful and diligent of the life of obedience that we live while we're here upon this earth. I mean, how easy is it? brothers and sisters, for us to live life here on this earth with no thought to eternity in what's going to happen after we die. It's very easy. I mean, it's a lot like, uh, you know, being out in some parts of Kansas. You know, let's say you're heading out to Colorado and it's pretty flat, right? And it's just very easy to sort of forget where you're at and just sort of become comfortable with your car. You sort of become one with your car, right? And you just sort of push down the accelerator more and more and more and more. And next thing you know, you're going 10, 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. And you just don't really think about it. Because, you know, there's just a lot of nothing around. I shouldn't say nothing. It's, Western Kansas is still beautiful. But, you know, it's just pretty flat. And you're just, you're just sort of tooling along. But what happens if you look up ahead and you see a police officer sitting alongside the road? Now, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but I would almost guarantee you that every person in this room would all of a sudden let off that accelerator. You know, as they think about the fact that there could be accountability 
for the things that they are doing in their life. Or if they're tooling down the highway and they look in the rearview mirror and they see a cop car, all of a sudden, we slow down. Because there's that sense of accountability. And it's the same way with that in one sense as, as we live in light of eternity, knowing that one day that we will be judged. But, you know, uh, I want us, you know, I do want to make the point, though, that as we stand before Christ, we know that we will not be judged based on our merit or our works only, but we will be judged based upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But still, we will stand before the one who has given us new life. And might this be have an effect upon the life in which we live here, that we know that, the, that as we stand, we will stand before the Savior who suffered and died for every sin that we have committed because he loved us. Would that not cause us, even while we are here upon this earth, not to grieve him, not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but to walk in obedience to him? And then James goes on and he says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, James speaks to those in the church who have not shown mercy to the, to the poor and the outcasts. You know? And so he warns them, and his warning is very clear in the first part of this verse. He basically is saying an unmerciful uh, attitude in one who professes to have received mercy in Jesus Christ is a contradiction. It doesn't work that way. You know, it, it is a contradiction to say that we have received Christ's mercy and yet fail to be merciful to others. You know, and that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 18, uh, beginning with verse 21, as he talks about the unforgiving servant. You remember? The servant comes to the king and he says, I can't pay this debt. As a matter of fact, it's a debt I could work my whole life. My children could work their whole life. Their children could work their whole life. And we would never pay it off. King, would you have mercy on me? What does the king say? Sure, I will forgive you. I will be merciful towards you. I will not give you what you deserve, but I will forgive you. And then that servant goes out and he finds another servant who owes him just a little bit. And he just shakes that servant and says, give me what you owe me. And he puts him in prison. And the king hears about that. And what does he do? He, he basically withdraws his forgiveness and he throws the first servant in jail. And Jesus says, and so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive. Now, it's not that our mercy uh, has purchasing power. It's not that it can buy our way to heaven. That's not what Jesus was saying. But it is evidence that we have received God's mercy, which in turn makes us merciful to others. So you want to know if you're a believer? You want to know if your heart has been changed by the gospel? You can look at your life and you're going to see that you will be prone to show mercy to others because you are reminded of the mercy that's been shown to you. Amen? God is so good to work his uh, salvation in us so thoroughly. But since the law of God itself is liberating, uh, disobedience is without excuse because we are set free to obey the law of God. But because we live as if we were still under the domain of Satan so often, rather than under the loving care of King Jesus, we have much need of God's mercy. And, and so to hear what James says in the first part of verse 13 can be very humbling to us and could even maybe cause us some uh, concern. But then he goes on at the end of verse 13 and he says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, justice demands what is due 
that the sinner should be condemned. That's what, that's what justice demands. But mercy pleads that that person may be saved. And what James is telling us is, brothers and sisters, guess what? Mercy wins out. Mercy prevails. Which is good news for us. Because in this way, at the end of a very searching section, James brings us uh, this word of comfort as brothers and sisters. Because, you know, we show ourselves, uh, to be sure, if we show ourselves to be merciful, we can count on God's mercy but there's no way in which anything about ourselves is sufficient ground for this kind of confidence. And it might be very easy as we look at this and we, we even look at our own hearts and our own lives. You know, we might look at our capacity for mercy and we might be a little concerned. Or, or we might think, wow, is, is my heart truly merciful? Or is my mercy pure or good or perfect? And what James wants to do is to direct our attention uh, away from ourselves. And wants us to look at the cross of Jesus Christ because it is in the cross of Christ that we truly have received both justice and mercy. Where Christ paid for our sins, but he also did not treat us the way that, that we deserve. And, and so James comes to this, the end of this chapter, and he just sort of stops it. Or not the end of this chapter, but the end of this section. And he just sort of stops it abruptly. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I, I wonder, as he, as he does that, if he doesn't want to leave this as a, as a pressing thing upon our souls to say, where is your heart? Where is your heart? Where is your life? You know, if you have given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants you to know that as, you, as one day you will stand before Christ, that his mercy will cover you. It will win out over judgment. And so you can trust him in that. That's the position before God. Judgment looks at the spiritual deserts of our soul, but mercy sees our needs. And God Himself looks to the cross and sees the Son of God there paying that price for us. So, in our relationships with others, where are our eyes focused? Are our, are our eyes focused on the appearance of others? Are they focused upon their status? Is that how we look and as we judge people? Do we maybe look upon their sins and we make a judgment about them and we show partiality or we show favoritism based upon those things? Or brothers and sisters, are our eyes fixed steadfast upon the cross of Jesus Christ where mercy has been shown to us that we might show mercy to others and, and love them as Christ has loved us. Amen? Let's bow our heads and have a time of silence as we contemplate the Word of God that's preached this morning. Oh Lord, we come to you today and, and it's really our prayer, really the prayer of David where he says, Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Lord, it is our prayer that you would open our eyes to see that the word of God that you give to us, your laws, are good and perfect. Help us, O oh God, to embrace these things. Uh, understanding the freedom that we have in Christ and how you love us and want us to continue to walk in that freedom. 
uh, not as a payment for uh, our ticket to heaven, as some might think, but Lord, instead, that we might enjoy the new life that we have in Christ. And Father, I, I pray that if there be any here today who do not know you, who don't understand this mercy, that they might give their, their hearts to you, that God, you would be so good to open their eyes and to allow them to be able to see the, the true condition of their lives. Lord, that they might turn to you and cry out to you as the God who shows mercy. We thank you, O Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.